the work week, am I right? But do you know what would make it a little bit better? Doing church on a Sunday and then listening to a podcast about the sermon. Welcome to the Post-Sunday Blues, a preaching post-mortem, a production of Liberty Church Collingswood. Each week we'll spend some time unpacking Sunday sermonics, and we hope that you'll be able to connect a little deeper with the message and the messenger. It's a win, if we can make your work week a little less blue. House lights down. Welcome to the Post-Sunday Blues, a preaching post-mortem. I'm Emily, here with my husband, Jim Hanger. Jim, Jim Hanger. <laughs> I missed the landing of that joke. <laughs> my my hangry? Jim Harden. Jim Harden. Big Jim Harden. Here we go. It really doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> you were paying attention. I, I, well, I mean, I'm supposed to. I'm taking notes. I'm a podcast host. <laughs> you are. And and we, we had on Sunday I'm another person come up to you and say, oh, I've I've heard you a, talk on the pod many times. Keeping my Love husband it. in line. That's what I'm known for. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly what she said. Um, you keep me in line. Do you feel like people knew that before the podcast? Do you think people had that sense of me? I'm curious. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> I think they knew. <laughs> no, I, yeah. No, seriously, they knew. Trust me on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, how are you doing? What what's what's going on these days? We are recording on a Monday, a day early, because I'm headed out to my parents' place for business, not pleasure this time. I was gonna Liberty. say because because one week away was not enough. <laughs> That's right. Liberty Pastors Retreat is at the Anger Family Complex, so we're crossing the streams at them. So it's family plus church. It's all coming together. Mm-hmm. It feel, feels like a wedding where you have different strata of oh, one's existence and friends all coming together your so pastor bro friends to <laughs> invade the family homestead right <laughs> hopefully everybody will survive the zip line which did not happen last time so we're oh, looking for yeah, an injury free retreat which is easier said than done <laughs> we shall see um <laughs> Yeah, well, let's let's jump in. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a podcast where we're examining this sermon from last Sunday, and this yes. past Sunday you were preaching, still on Noah. How it's many a sermons, really long how many sermons does Noah need? Uh, we are making it a point to go slowly through the beginning of Genesis, and like it or not, the flood takes up many chapters of narrative in the book of Genesis, which is actually a question that scholars have: mm-hmm. why? Why so much detail on this one story as opposed to others? The, hmm. the other question with Genesis is why the Joseph story, which starts maybe around Genesis 37 and goes all the way through 50, why so many mm-hmm. chapters there when some other events are covered relatively quickly? So. Sure. And what, what's the answer to that? Is Actually, like, let's frame this in terms of sermon choices mm. as we get into Call It Stormy Monday. Ah. <laughs> why See what do you, you did. Why do you choose to... Uh, ex- Extend a sermon, a, a, because in the past I've I have felt like you take a, the whole of a narrative and mm-hmm. and put that in one sermon. Like some, there are some pastors like the ones we we grew up with. When I say grew up, I meant college, we like in college, right? babies, Just babies, babies in college, um, where you would go like verse by verse by verse in mm-hmm. in a passage. So it was pretty slow through yep. like one story. But yeah, you tend to choose to tell a story as a narrative whole, but with Noah, you are breaking it down into like 
thematic pieces of the story. Or maybe not thematic, yeah. but you're breaking down the story a little bit. Right, that's true. I think on one hand, there was a feeling when I was talking with the elders at Liberty Collingswood M last summer about what to do going into the ministry year, there was a joint sense and burden that we wanted to go more slowly through a book of the Bible or a section of the book of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so I was and have been operating from a let's go slowly mandate, which Mm -hmm. fit something like this, uh, just to let the scripture speak. So if I go quickly, I'm just hitting a couple of themes. But if we're taking our time through something like the flood narrative, we're genuinely listening to the scriptures to see what bubbles to the surface. Sure. And so that that was one part. And then on the other hand, the doing the flood quickly loses a lot of nuance. Right. And if this is a story that the author of Genesis, uh, ultimately God is the author of all the scriptures, wanted to take so much time to do, I thought it would be fun to slow down and take it on its own terms, which hopefully does not feel too slow to our congregation where it's flood after flood after flood. So there you go. Curious and also curious, like what what are you bringing in this particular Sunday? What are you, if we're looking at the Call It Stormy Monday, what are you specifically burdened about as you approach as you approached this sermon prep? I was thinking about stowries. So, story. The story in a, <laughs> story in a southern like, accent. Where does that? Yeah, you've, you've been to the south before. I you understand the, how I, that I works. I was like, is that a cocktail? <laughs> <laughs> that you were I having wish. in New Orleans? Well, I was yeah. not there. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, moving right along. <laughs> that point being, thinking about how, how stories shape us and Going back to the idea that the flood story takes a lot of chapters, going back to before Jesus, when generation after generation of Israelites would spend time with their Bibles, this story was designed to be, especially because all of the detail and length of it, deeply formative to the experience of the people of God and thinking in similar ways how could a story like this, specifically with Noah, but then more broadly, how can the true story of the scriptures actually shape us? Because, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, there are always interpretive narratives that we operate with that interprets our experience for us. Mm -hmm. And let's try to bring some of those baseline narratives more to the surface. And so Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about, hey, how can we, as a community of faith, be more deeply formed by the story of the gospel. So that's where Give my headspace was. What's a story that shapes your life? What's a story <laughs> that you tell yourself? You're, you're, you're <laughs> smiling. I, are you thinking of something specifically? No, or? I'm curious as to how you're going to answer uh, it. I'm, I'm usually the smirker, so I'm not sure what's going on here right now. The sort of what I said in the beginning of the sermon again, um, if I think life should be great versus not, if I think I'm a winner or not, we talk Enneagram sometimes on this podcast. If I'm supposed to be as the achiever, the performer, the number three, then if I'm supposed to be one, the one that wins the room <laughs> or is connected with people and doesn't or let people down wins. or just wins, <laughs> the, then, then those narratives are things that, you know, I've got to live into this, this mold or fit this story. So, 
it's a for good or for ill thing. Sometimes mm-hmm. the stories that we try to live out are healthy and life-giving. Sometimes they're pleasing to God. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're healthy and life-giving. Sometimes they're not. But yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the smirk. I'm not smirking. You were misreading my... Okay. I'm just staring into your eyes. <laughs> That's fair. I'll take it. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, can we move on to presence of the lord sun studios here we go you saw the preview for the elvis movie speaking of sun studios did you you notice that i I, wait how did you know did clara tell you clara told me so (laughs) yeah when we saw dr strange (laughs) i I hadn't yet gotten to the theater we had just we were driving to see dr strange and in the car you were talking about elvis the movie and then like you and a whole cadre of Agar children needed to go to the bathroom, which I never always, understand. Always go to the bathroom like, before Why a movie. you don't go at home where there's like a much nicer bathroom? Like, why do you have to go to the movie theater bathroom, which is disgusting to me? Like, because they have urinals. Yeah. And then urinals are always nicer. And then you missed the <laughs> you very, the very preview that you had been talking about of the movie that you've been talking about, which I had to like plug my ears. <sighs> It looked like a good movie, though, didn't it? You know, I would say, like, I would be interested in the, the Tom story, Hanks but I just as Colonel Tom Park literally can't listen to the movie, so. That is one of the deep marriage issues hard. between us. Elvis, at least you're on board with Bruce. I'll take that. Elvis is like the, the fingernail scratching on a chalkboard to me or like the, the knife on a plate. Uh, I can't listen to him. So I don't play Elvis in the house when Emily's around, else... I live out the, well, since my baby left me. So it's not even, it's not even that I don't like it because there's other music of yours that I just Mm -hmm. don't like. Right. But like, I know that's right. I literally can't listen to it without my internal body. So that movie would be painful. We win some, Um, we lose some. That's a tangent. Um, why did you mention Elvis? Because Elvis <laughs> recorded first at Sun Studios, oh. which is where we are right now. I need to talk to you about these headaches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you do a lot, actually. Um, okay, so tell us more about this specific passage, what you were finding particularly um, intriguing about these specific aspect of um, the Noah story. Yes. The... Waters have finally receded. Blake Smitley did a great job preaching last week talking about the the exit from the ark. And I have a couple of comments on the text and then a couple of cleanup things um, related to rounding out the the Noah story. We have Kyle Connect preaching this coming week, the church planning resident from Liberty Northeast, who I'd have to go back and check the schedule. I think the last of Noah Mm -hmm. is going to be rounded out with Kyle this coming week. But after the flood, commentators have remarked for generations that this is kind of a second creation account where God starts over. You have the be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth mandate given again, which echoes what God told Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 1. Talked about how there is a strong mandate for life, and if the flood was anti-life, anti-creation, uncreation, Now we have all of those things roaring back. We have life protected and sustained and mandated by God. We have creation in its rhythms being reestablished. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, 
shall not cease. So God is getting the creation band back together in this passage. So I think that's that's exciting. Wanted to hopefully do justice to that aspect of the text. Mm-hmm. And then also within the recreation story, and I tried to connect that with how God is also at work to restore all, th- if this is the recreation of the earth, we look forward to a new heavens and earth. So there's a through line there. Then also the substitute story. We have Noah offering the sacrifice. And that was interesting to cast the sacrifice, Mm -hmm. the burnt offering that Noah made, anticipating the sacrificial system, like in the book of Leviticus, then carrying forward to Jesus. So that was a fun connection to make. So there's recreation, but then also a reckoning with evil via the sacrifice that Noah has made. Right. And you are rattling off a lot of the points, but um, the those those ideas all kind of have chewing points on them. For me, the like mm-hmm. the sacrifice concept is still one that I'm chewing on a little bit. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think it's. I think I. I don't know. I I said that, and like now I don't even have anything to say about it. But. Were, were you thinking that? maybe that point didn't land or no no, no 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 i'm thinking about conceptually just that is the that's like one of the highlights of part of the clean slate is like you're clean slating mm-hmm. and then you're you're offering a sacrifice that's part of the the clean slate of of recognizing like sometimes when people say they want a clean slate i think they might just want to forget about the past or they move well, on to like a totally new space right um I often say, like, I just want a new house, like a new, a new smaller, <laughs> like cleaner, mm-hmm. like to get rid of everything and then right. to start over. But yeah. there's something um, to pause on when when you think about him starting, um, starting with a sacrifice, and then also the part that's more uh, uh, difficult to chew on is the idea of like the of the flood wiping out the earth or right. wiping out animals. Um, and then to start with a sacrifice again. Yeah. Those are just things to have to puzzle through. Those are interesting for sure. Two things to engage with that there. Um, one, I like the language of clean slate in relation to this passage. We can think of it like a distressed marriage relationship where sometimes a spouse has wronged the other and that spouse will say, hey, really messed up let's just start over with a clean slate. But then the wronged spouse will say, it's actually not that easy. Like you've, mm-hmm. you've done something really damaging to this marriage, to this relationship. And the, the wronged party will often say there, there's got to be more of a reckoning. And so clean slate requires reckoning. And mm-hmm. that's built into, I think this idea of the sacrifice here, where there's God observed back in Genesis chapter six, that, the only intentions of man's heart was only evil. All the intentions of man's heart was only evil all the time. Mm-hmm. And with the continuance of evil, why doesn't God just send, send another flood? It, that restraint is related to the sacrifice here. And then also going back em, to what you said earlier about why go slowly through 
a story like this, all of these chapters in Genesis, if you're going quickly through the flood narrative in Genesis, you're going to skip over the detail of Noah offering the sacrifice because it's only a couple of verses and there's just not time. Mm -hmm. But I think you lose what's actually a pretty crucial aspect of the story. Having to sit with sacrifice. Right. Having to to sit through and work through that reckoning, Mm -hmm. which also is one of the real connection points with the gospel. Jesus is our high priest who offered himself, which relates again. So substitute story, also a grace story. So the, the rainbow stuff you've, you've heard, well, you've actually heard me preach through these verses before the, the, both the rainbow and the bow, the symbol, not only of pretty colors in the sky, but the reason there won't be another flood of God's judgment and wrath is because God will self-afflict, will aim the bow upon himself, mm-hmm. pointing forward to Jesus as our gracious substitute. It took me a number of years to get on board with that interpretation just because mm-hmm. it feels a little too, I don't know, fluffy or is that really... Symbolism that... Like, yeah, like is that just some weird allegorical interpretation that has nothing to do? But I've been worn down over the years by the sheer number of commentators and Bible teachers that claim the same point. So I, I wasn't... I wasn't going out on an interpretive limb saying that because there is such a massive opinion behind this idea sure. of pastors rainbow like and their, bow. Pastors like their symbols. Right. So take it for what it's worth. God God set a bow upon himself in the heavens, uh, which again is fulfilled in the cross. Right. Where, where are you with rainbow versus bow? <laughs> um, I mean, it is also the, the connection that you made to lots of other cultures or it is like an embedded concept in human nature to feel like sacrifice is is a a thing like that's actually that was also a a kind of stunning thought to me yeah um not stunning that's the wrong word it's a little bit of an exaggeration you you can say stunning you were stunned by my sermon that's great (laughs) We'll, we'll keep that in uh like the time stone, there was a sacrifice that needed to happen. Um, Marvel on my mind. Uh, but we really like Marvel's mentioning sacrifice. Like, why is sacrifice part of our ethos? And it's not. It's not just an American or or a Christian uh, concept. Exactly. So, um, yeah, but I'll ignore the rainbow thing. I don't know. <laughs> okay, a couple other things here in presence of the Lord. One. I, there was a Liberty Youth kid, I popped my head into Liberty Youth before the service, who asked me, Jim, you got anything on God and time? And I was like, well, do I have a sermon for you today, young lad? So fun to at least mention the whole thing about God being timeless, sovereign, perfect, self-contained, outside of creation, and yet interacting with human beings in real time. So I just kind of threw that out for this kid and then other theology and philosophy nerds out there. Two other interpretive questions that I wanted to circle back to real quick, Em, before leaving the flood, at least for now. The Brandon Best, when he preached a few weeks ago, and I mentioned briefly a couple weeks ago too, there is a question as to is what's being portrayed in these chapters of Genesis, is it meant to be taken as a worldwide flood versus a local one? I don't know if that question rings a bell. So more recently, over the past couple hundred years, there's been a growing school of interpretation that says what's being talked about here is actually not 
meant to be a worldwide flood, but something localized to the to the ancient Near East. And that I think the impulse behind that interpretation is to recognize that the idea of a worldwide flood is difficult to prove by geology and archaeological record. It would be easier to treat as history if we're only talking about a localized flood here. So kind of a way of bridging between scripture and modern science and that sort of thing. With my own process with that, I was more open to that interpretation years ago than now, because going back to this story again, it raises scientific questions, which I, which I get and I don't want to duck, but I think it's pretty straightforward that what's being portrayed here by way of intention of the story is that this is a worldwide flood. And if, if you say, hey, this flood is being intended as only a local one, I think the story loses a lot of its power because the point is that this is God wiping out creation, raises a lot of questions again, mm -hmm. and then starting over. If it's only a few square miles of flood, then that then it totally radically changes our understanding of of what this story is about. And so I'm I'm more settled at this point saying that I'm gonna I'm gonna go where I think this text is pointing pretty pretty unambiguously and live with the fact that yeah it stretches stretches our imagination to say that there really was a worldwide flood except I did mention in a sermon at one point if you go around the world and we'll get in muddying the waters back to this idea um, of the universality of human impulse for sacrifice there are in many cultures around the world, including ones not very close to the ancient Near East, where in their earliest recordings, writings, drawings, there was some primordial flood that's mm -hmm. talked about. So it's actually not as far-fetched as people might think. So wanted to go back to that. And then also... Okay. Challenges abound. There we go. For, for, for the sake challenge of time, I'll just throw this out briefly. Another objection to the flood story, and this relates more directly to the rainbow. Do you know what etiology is? E T I L O G Y. So an etiology <laughs> is is a kind of ancient story or legend that was never meant to be interpreted as true historical or factual, mm -hmm. but instead a story designed to give some explanation for some sort of Something. natural so occurrence or reality. So case. Yeah. This and so, so there are some Christians and plenty of Bible skeptics that say this is not real history at all. This is just an etiology trying to explain why it rains a lot and mm -hmm. also why there's, why there's rainbows. My, my issue with that criticism and the etiology thing in general is that it's a non-falsifiable argument mm -hmm. where it's you, you can't actually prove or disprove whether something's an etiology just on the basis of the question itself. Because like, unless you can get video footage, okay. you can't prove or disprove. Right. Uh, so instead, you have to go and look at other sets of reasons. And I think the other sets of reasons, including... Uh, is this is this intended as mere legend? Does it does it read like mere legend? Is as it connects with broader stories? Is this a legendary story inserted into a broader historical account? And 
Bible scholars will tend to say this this does not bear a lot of the earmarks of other ancient etiologies. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it seems to be intended as history and not just fairy tale. Okay, Bible scholar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll take there we go. for it. But... Yep. The etiological question <laughs> has been raised and settled for all time. Just now. It was great. Jim Hanger. Um, let's move Jim on, moving on to muddying the waters. <laughs> um, so things like that, they're, what is fun or difficult about constructing this sermon, there, there are a lot of like red herring. Not, they're not red herrings. They're like genuine courses like, of study that people like will kind of wander into. But mm-hmm. um, when you're constructing the sermon, how do you how like how do you excise and go straight with the story? Um, that you and I, I guess this time it was like to tell the story of story. <laughs> yeah. So you're asking why these rabbit trails and not those rabbit trails that mm-hmm. I pursue in a ser- sermon. I, I try to have enough of an idea of the main point of what I want to say mm-hmm. that gives an editing impulse for what I keep in and leave out. And then secondarily, I want to be able to treat the questions that would naturally be raised by a set of verses. So for that second thing, it's a fail if a preacher gives a sermon where people read a text, the sermon text, and everybody in the room is saying, wow, well, what does that mean about Uh X? Uh And for the preacher not to go there or treat the the elephant in the room, you're just wasting people's time and it looks like some sort of, some sort of avoidance. So I want to hopefully have my ear to the ground and address the hand to the pulse. Yeah. To to get at what, what will be raised in people's minds from a text. And then also going back to the first point, thinking through the main thrust of the sermon and letting that, letting that be, be its own Occam's razor for, for the rest. And like you just said, letting God write your story was the, was story, the story of the sermon. Yeah. Well, what is the context you're trying to engage with that that concept, like letting God write your story? Autonomy. So, Are you saying that you think that I want to be autonomous? <laughs> <laughs> it, it would seem that, 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 that we would want to be the captain of our ship. And the, what is that? What's that Invictus line, the captain of the ship? the sailor of my souls or or something like that. I, mm-hmm. I do have a high school friend who writes fanfic science fiction and Ooh. the you, yeah you can't I, pro- I, I probably yeah. shouldn't shouldn't say but it, but but it, is it, it on reddit it involves a lot of I'll start digging like science fiction sailors and it, it's you know I'll we'll have as a bonus episode for maybe this is more five golden things me me reciting my high school no, friends fan fiction what fan fiction do you write the oh well they're called sermons <laughs> and and they're, and and they're they're really great so right whether it's the restoration story redemption story substitute grace there's a deep impulse i think in human hearts in any age, but then especially this in one. our age. Yeah. yeah, for us, it's the expressive individualism for us to be be in charge of ourselves, be the authors of our own story. And there's a lot of good, it's not, there's a creation impulse in that. Mm-hmm. We, we do want to make a difference. We do want to self-determine. And so that's not all bad or wacky or evil, but mm-hmm. we make it that way, whether it's not wanting to have any author besides ourselves, not wanting to be determined by our community or those around us, 
or autonomy as it relates to self-atonement and, and putting in the work. So, sure. so hopefully, and, and I guess I didn't say that explicitly in the sermon, that autonomy was the... What you're, what you're speaking to. Yeah, the, the, I think, the other yeah. side of the... The, well, if, the necklace that has best friends with the two parts of the heart. So autonomy was the other part of the sure. besties I mean, if part. your theme is that God needs to write our story, it is it is that we centrally want to write our own story. Right. So even, is it Facebook or Instagram who has stories now? You don't know because you're not on either. But I think it's Instagram stories, right? Is it? Or is it Instagram reels? One of them does reels. One of them does stories. Anyway, it is the the concept of trying to express yourself and then be be heard by other people, yeah. um, with the framework of like what narrative is in your 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 particular yep um, frame. And again, there's a good creation impulse there, but there's also a fallen aspect mm-hmm. of that too. And I was really interested um, to find this Kelly Williams Brown quote that was the adulting person mm-hmm. who. In a Vanity Did Fair really article. Did you really coin the word? Because the word the word has taken hold. I wouldn't be right. surprised if it was in the dictionary at this point. Yes. So, so I was not really familiar with this author, this person, or with the book. But at least in the Vanity Fair interview that came out recently, the Vanity Fair article claims that she was the she one. Was the and one. and huh. she she tells a story. She, she was at a bar and talking to an older mentor about coming into adulthood. And she just off the top of her head said something like, it's really hard, all this adulting stuff. Uh And if I'm remembering the interview correctly, and maybe this is an etiology, who knows, Uh but but the bartender walked by and said, that's really good, adulting, (laughs) (laughs) or something like that. Yeah. So I I think, I, I don't have it written in front of me, I think that was 2013, and it was... The adulting book, Life is Kelly Williams Brown. Since then, in, in the interview, says that I've had some good things and hard things ha- happen to me, but she still wrestles with living with purpose in a world of ultimately without meaning. And she said, I lie to myself. Mm-hmm. If I'm just a nihilist, then what's the point of anything? Why wouldn't I just go out to the desert and curl up into a ball and dry it and die? Mm-hmm. That That's sort of, I think it's a, it's a, a fault line in a lot of secularity, which I talk about in different ways, really on multiple Sundays. Mm-hmm. But, but I I don't often see secular people stating it so quite explicitly. quite this way. So it it felt like a peek behind the curtain. But, but I hope I treated. I mean, I I would challenge the idea. Hopefully, hopefully I treated it with respect mm-hmm. and didn't sound dismissive or right. or or crass towards her. But. I think it's worth thinking about. Like, if if life is ultimately meaningless, why are we mm-hmm. trying so hard to be good, et cetera? So that that was fun. That was fun to think about. And then going back to the idea too of do we need atonement? And that's that's the chief offense of the gospel, where God comes to us in Christ and says we have a we have a deficit in our sin. And we actually need to be forgiven before a holy God. Jesus gives us that gracious way. But I think part of part of human autonomy is to say, no, I'm I'm fine. And in terms of modern secular thought, the the idea there too is that, you know, guilt is this religious concept that we need to get past. And so it it's not just a 
no, I don't need forgiven. I'm morally great, but a rejection of the whole system. I, mm-hmm. I, I get that. So, so there is disagreement at multiple levels there, which I didn't go into during the sermon, but still to say that the offense of the gospel stands and does ask that central question and then tried to cast this whole idea of putting in the work as as something that still reaches for some sort of deficit awareness that we need that we need to work off and then you have the Herman Bovink saying around the world people make sacrifices mm-hmm. and and we will we'll tell ourselves that that we're beyond that but maybe maybe we've just internalized that sacrificial impulse in some new ways but it's still there right and you just used two of our band cover tunes by the way i just previewed them (laughs) (laughs) just previewed (laughs) you referenced them in order to highlight what your sermon was about but that's just commentary okay commentary for me yeah um yeah so i think that i think that our struggle might be less like what is our purpose and like is is our purpose um like more just not knowing if the purpose that we find in christ is is sufficient or true or whatever it's like speaking to the agnostic versus Mm -hmm. the atheist or the the um the adulting person the like yeah nihilist vision of like nothingness there's there's also the person who's just kind of stuck in the um, the, I know I have a story. I believe, I believe that everything has a reason. Um, but they still are kind of wandering without what that reason is. Right. Yeah. Which is far more typical. So Mm -hmm. most people don't ask these big questions all the time. They don't go straight to the, like, I am lying to myself. Right. Which, which is why I found the Kelly Williams Brown quote interesting because she, she connects dots that I think often we don't want, uh, to, to connect together. I, I did want to mention both the Buffalo shootings yeah. and the abortion real quick. Mm-hmm. The, so if, if Genesis 1, 27 and 28, uh, be fruitful and multiply, which God tells Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, in that sermon uh, also about God creating human beings in the image of God from Genesis 1, it was a three-part, this, this was October 10th, three-part sermon, part one, image of God, part two, why the image of God means that we need to oppose racism, both individually and systemically, mm-hmm. and then articulated a basic biblical pro-life position with abortion in the third part. All these months later, mm-hmm. those those issues continue to, to come to the fore. So the, the Buffalo shootings, again, another racially motivated crime that's pretty horrible. And as the story has unfolded since Sunday morning, it seems pretty straightforward that this shooter was a white supremacist who harbors racial hatred towards people of color, black people. And so we're going to keep banging the drum, ringing the bell for everybody being created in the image of Mm -hmm. God, in part because that's being functionally denied by the sort of ideology that we saw in horrible action in Buffalo. So it was right. sad to have to return to those themes again. And related to to the abortion stuff, I mentioned yesterday, uh, emotions are running super high right now. The Supreme Court mm-hmm. proto-decision leaked a, a couple of weeks ago. And as I continue to think through, maybe we'll, we should do some more discipleship on this as 
the months unfold, again, not because we're trying to pick a fight, but because I think it's possible that in some fresh ways or new ways, abortion is becoming a, a live political issue in mm-hmm. ways that it wasn't maybe over the past couple of decades as as there there seems to be a chance that Roe versus Wade will be revised and all of these states are doing different abortion rules. So right. I the two things that I'd want to say here very briefly, Sixth Commandment and Eighth Commandment. So the Sixth Commandment of the Ten is uh, thou shalt not kill. As I continue to read about abortion, not only from a Christian perspective, but plenty of pro-choice sources in, in secular culture and also some 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 Christian ones, and as I go back to the scriptures, I, I continue to believe that it's really hard to square a high view of scriptures with something other than a pro-life position. Right. Um, and I, I understand that there's a lot of strong feelings about sure. it, but at the end of the day, I think the there's there's been enough time and reflection upon the scriptures specifically with this question that yeah I'll I'll keep I'll keep thinking but but I feel I feel pretty settled so that that feels like a bedrock but what I wish that I heard more from in addition to that from some Christian circles that would have the same opinion as I do regarding the sixth commandment and the pro-life position. We also need to take into account the eighth commandment, which is thou shalt not steal, which is used in Jewish and Christian circles of interpretation as one of the foundational principles for justice. Mm-hmm. Turn, don't steal from another perspective. That's why we need to have a just and equitable uh, society. So I think that a pro-life position also needs to account for a lot of the justice issues that abortion pings, whether the history of abortion and race and poverty and abuse of women and on on down the line, a lot of the reasons that will cause people to be pro-choice. I'm not saying that we need, I'm not saying that I should be Mm -hmm. pro-choice, nor should other people, but Christians that are pro-life still need to address and engage these issues. So, mm-hmm. so, so to me, I see it as a both and. So for especially Christians that struggle with a pro-life position, I would say, hey, keep weighing and thinking about the sixth commandment. Uh, and I do believe that pro-life is more consistent. But then for people that are there, also make sure, hey, what are we doing to alleviate injustice in all of these other different ways as relates to the Eighth Commandment, we need to work on both of these fronts and not just one. And it's a to-be-continued conversation sure. Conversation as politically these policies continue to unfold, both from the judicial and also legislative branches. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot, of, lot to say, a lot to think about. But I, I think it's true that from our my pro, pro-choice friends that the biggest criticism is like that there doesn't seem to be from the people who really advocate for pro-life mm-hmm. that there there isn't support for co- government programs that really assist people who are in places of struggling sure with a lot of a lot of friends and neighbors those are the connections mm-hmm. that they're making and the questions that they're asking so right. i agree so adding them as in parallel or in tandem is i think important yeah. but sixth commandment eighth commandment okay um I have nine minutes, so yes. we're going to speed through Barb and Covington, since you already addressed them. The more <laughs> important ones are 
the Marvel ones where um, you were talking about. <laughs> you, you always go to the pop culture first. <laughs> Love it. Well, you already addressed the other ones. The two, sure. The, the Bob Inc. and uh, I don't know. You, well, what do you want to say? Well, let me at least mention the Jennifer Egan since, okay. since that was at the beginning of the sermon. Egan was visit from the Goon Squad about 10 years ago. The Atlantic magazine had an article by Mark Greif reviewing Egan's most recent The Candy Store, which is a sequel to Visit from the Goon Squad. He had some some criticism. I haven't read the the new book by Egan, but I've read a good amount of Greif and his criticisms of the new book, I think were pretty persuasive to me, so I'm not sure I'll read the new one. But it, but it, but I really enjoyed Visit from the Goon Squad, and this character says she was writing a story of redemption, of fresh beginnings and second chances. Mm-hmm. Redemption, transformation, how she wanted these things every day, every minute, didn't everyone. So that was one of the foundational non-Bible texts. Sure. But, but breaking news, you won't read the second book. <laughs> I will... <laughs> I will not. So, so Egan was fun. Heard it here first. The, yes. there, there was Bavink universi- universality you of sacrifice. The <laughs> super fast with him, and and I, I realize you do have a working deadline here. The so in the late 1800s, as global anthropology was taking root as a discipline for the first time in the Western Academy, there were some parts of the Christian church that were backing away from historic Christian faith because we discover more about other religions and say that Christian we can't hold to uniqueness of Christianity as we continue to learn more about other cultures around the world. Bovink was somebody, and he's the ideal scholar for me as one of those both-and people where he, he was an eager engager of a lot of the new scholarship coming in, but then also held to historic Christian faith and one of the things that he said is, hey, as we learn about cultures around the world, we remember that Christianity, the early church originally was a multinational, multi-ethnic organization or movement better than organization that was quite aware of pluralism back in its own day. So mm-hmm. this isn't anything new. And we can learn about the human condition from these other sources, including that the fact that sacrifice was universal. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? So that's Bavink. We also had Klaus, Klaus Westermann, a German scholar. And then also, Em, if you were listening at the end of the sermon, Charles Spurgeon, who was a hero of yours from growing up. That He was your main man in, in late high school. And then we also... Had Doctor Strange, Moon Knight, and let me put in a plug again for Kingdom Come, a great graphic novel. Superman, I tried Batman. it, and it's not that great. I gave you Secret Wars. A, a, I was also a, a not Marvel that great. It was, that was like that was like all. So, so Emily's know. bottom line was: I said, "Hey, this graphic novel is really great. It's going to inform your understanding of I subsequent Marvel movies." And from a synchronic perspective, Emily, your answer was couldn't get into it, didn't like it. From a diachronic perspective, <laughs> you spent about sixty-two seconds That's trying not true. to get into I, it. You were you were taking a shower, so it was a good like ten minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So leftovers. Six or suck. You have five minutes. <laughs> nope. Uh, guitar Slim Pickens. Oh, that is leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> leftovers. Any feedback that you've been given? I did not like that one either. Leftovers. That's also true. Um, 
No Howlin' Wolves. No one's talking to you. <laughs> Is anyone listening? <laughs> we're 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 uh, we're we're gonna end this podcast like the Sixers ended their season with the whimper. I gotta go. <laughs> do you have anything to say? Last words? Do you, do you do you have time to give the sign off? How was it? That was amazing. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been the Post Sunday Blues, a preaching post mortem production of Liberty Collingswood. Go ahead, rate, review, and subscribe, and you can find all things Liberty Collingswood at libertycollingswood.org. No more post Sunday blues. Here comes some pre Sunday happy. Oh,